This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Welcome to Super Age. My name is David Stewart. I am the founder of Ageist and your host on the Super Age show. We talk about how to live healthier, how to live longer, and how to be happier. And who doesn't want that? Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, the dashboard to your inner health. Go to insidetracker.com slash ages, save 20% on all their products. Today's show is also brought to you by Element, L-M-N-T, my favorite electrolyte mix. It's what I put in my water in the morning, and it's what I put in my water at the gym. Go to drinkelement.com slash ages and receive a free eight-serving sample pack with any purchase. Today's show is also brought to you by Timeline Nutrition with their breakthrough product, MitoPure, the first clinically tested urolithin A supplement, which is showing tremendous results for mitochondrial health. Go to TimelineNutrition.com slash Ageist, use the code Ageist at checkout, and save 10% off your first order of MitoPure. Welcome to episode 118 of the Super Age Podcast. It's great to have you with us. This will be dropping on January the 25th, 2023. So this week in the town of Park City, Utah, where I'm currently living, is the Sundance Film Festival, which sort of takes over the whole town for about two weeks. Now, on the bad side, um, it makes the traffic really difficult. Um, there's a lot of people trying to get around. They want to get to openings and showings and parties and stuff like that. So that's kind of a bit of a drag for us locals. But um, there are a number of really upsides to this. And I went to a Sundance party that um, a friend of mine, uh, the old neighbor of mine, Emily Best, who runs a company called Seed and Spark, and she had a party and she invited us. And um, it was awesome. They're just like all these really creative, interesting people from all over the world. And so for this like sort of two week period, this, you know, sort of like ski resort town is transformed into this very cosmopolitan, just crucible of creativity. And it's really awesome seeing all these different people in town um, wearing different kinds of clothes and they're different colors and they've got all kinds of, you know, they're just like really different than the people who normally live here. And I think that's awesome. Now, the other upside is that all the vacation rentals, all the hotel rooms, (laughs) everything that's sort of associated with, you know, the transient resort economy here has been taken up by the folks who come to Sundance, which means there are almost zero visitors here who are here to ski. So everybody who's here is in town doing the Sundance film thing, which means like, hey, pro tip, if you want to come and ski in Park City, this is the time of year you want to do it because there's nobody here. Like the mountain is just empty. Um, the town's really full, but if you want to ski, um, it's kind of a great time. And on the subject of my ongoing quest to become a master ski racer, all I got to say is there is a whole heck of a lot to learn. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, every day I, it's like putting a grain of sand onto the beach <laughs> It's like I get a little better, but oh boy, there's a long way to go. Um, and But I'm having a great time. It's now everybody, you know, we've all been together for, you know, a while now since, um, you know, like early December. 
And so it's very supportive. Everybody knows everybody and everybody's story. And there are people from, you know, different countries that are here. And um, it's it's super interesting. It's a real bonus that I hadn't thought about. And, you know, is when it comes down to it, anything you do, it's really about the other people. <laughs> and um, in this case, the other people are great and the coaches are great. So um, big plug for the Park City Masters Ski Racing Program. If you want to learn how to ski better or you just want to, like, hang out with people and do cool stuff, um, check it out. One of the things about skiing is that you're sort of up there for long periods of time. Um, We don't get a whole lot of breaks. Like, we sort of go from, like, I don't know, like 8.30 till about 11.30, maybe 12. And, you know, there's a lot of activity. (laughs) We're very active, and we're up at fairly high altitude. So, you know, what I find is I get kind of dehydrated, and I do my best with that. And so what I do is... I'll have some Element, um, Element T, my favorite electrolyte mix. I'll have maybe 16 ounces, maybe more, maybe 24 ounces of that. Um, citrus salt, my favorite flavor. And then when I get down off the mountain, of course, I'm really thirsty. And not only am I thirsty, my head kind of hurts. My, you know, I'm, I'm low on electrolytes. I'm like, I can just feel like now I know what it feels like. I'm low on electrolytes. I'm low on hydration. And so the first thing I do is I'll put down another, you know, 16, 20 ounces of water with element in it. And then it's, it's like remarkable. It's like five minutes later, I feel fine. And I'm actually like, can I go back up on the mountain again? No, David, you can't. You got to go to work. Um, so if you would like to check out element, go to drinkelement.com, D-R-N-K-L-M-N-T.com slash ageist, and you'll get a free sample pack with any purchase. Check it out. So on the show today, speaking of hydration and electrolytes, we've got Rob Wolf, who one of his many things is he's one of the founders of Element, who is, of course, one of the sponsors of this program. But that's not why I wanted to have him on. He, he's a fascinating guy. Um, he's cured uh, a lot of his sort of autoimmune stuff through his paleo eating program. Um, He's a very fit guy, and he's a very curious guy, um, meaning he's really interested in a lot of different things. And I, and I wanted to hear directly from him this whole thing about sodium, um, because we hear so much out in the world about how sodium is this like bad bugbear, you know, avoid it, and sort of how he discovered that maybe that wasn't the case. Um, and, you know, what he's interested in today, which is... You know, some some pretty interesting stuff. Um, really interesting guy. So we're going to get with Rob Wolf in just a moment after this. Earlier this week, I was talking to my buddy Gary. And Gary is what you would call a spin enthusiast. So Gary goes to the same spin class, same bike, um, like four or five times a week. And we were talking. He called me up. He's like, hey, I've been taking MitoPure, the urolithin A supplement. And he said, you know, I feel different do you feel different? I said, yeah, I do. I have like more energy. And he's like, yeah, I can't really put a number on it. Um, But he said, like, I definitely feel more energy. And I said, well, like, you know, okay. So like, how does it manifest Gary? Cause I want to, I need to be able to explain this to other people. And he says, well, you know, what happens is when I get on my spin bike, if I do a double, who does double spin classes? Gary does. Um, He said that now the second one, I can my output is almost the same as the first one. And when I've done it in the past, the second one, I was just it just used to kill me. So um, that's the latest on 
Mitopure and Urolithin A from my friend Gary. Timeline is offering listeners of this podcast 10% off your first order of Mitopure. Go to timelinenutrition.com slash ageist and use the code ageist to get 10% off your order. That's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E-N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N dot com slash ageist. We're going to get with Rob Wolf in just a second. Uh, Just a quick reminder, after we finish our conversation with Rob, we have our new segment called Try This, which is just sort of a little thing, a little hint to maybe help your life a little better, a little easier, a little healthier. So we're going to, that's always right after our conversation. So we're going to get with Rob right now. Hey, Rob, how are you today? Pretty good. How about yourself? Uh, I'm doing great, man. Where, where are you today? We are, I am here with my family in Kalispell, Montana. Kind of, uh, if you have a really good arm, you could throw a rock and pretty much hit Canada. So we're, we're, we're about as far north as you can get and still, still be in the lower 48. Burr, that sounds really cold. It, you know, it's funny. Um, Kalispell's only 3,000 feet elevation, approximately, like the valley proper. And so it's really not that bad. We did have a, a bender of a cold snap here early. Uh, we had a what I consider to be a really nice winter. It snowed a lot. It was cold. And and it came out rip-roaring. And now it looks like we're going to get like four months of mud season. Like it, it'll get into the... Uh, the coldest it's been is like the mid to low 20s. The warmest it gets is the mid to high-ish 30s. And so we're just in this like freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw deal that makes the roads treacherous and ridiculous. And and uh, what snow is out there, we still have some snow, but it's just kind of like crusty yeah. and nasty. And it's not really that much fun right now. Like I wish it was just dumping snow and it, oh. like if it's going to be gray and overcast, it's like... Okay, give me a foot of snow. Like, let's let's get after this thing. So. Well, well where, where I live, that's what happens. Like, right. It's been snowing. It didn't snow today, um, but it it snows like a foot a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I went out to my car this morning. It was seven degrees. And I just like had a T-shirt on. And I felt like I was going to a cryo tank. Yeah. Yeah. Like, whoa, this is cold. Um, so Rob, tell us a little bit about your background. I know that you have a background in biology. I I did an undergrad in biochemistry, uh, was, uh, kind of a bench researcher in cancer and autoimmunity research. Like if people care for the details, I was one of the guys that would run blood samples through, uh, uh, GC mass spec and try to separate out the different fractions of lipids like, uh, EPA, DHA, oleic acid and whatnot. And this is all the like basic science stuff. This was actually part of the nurses health initiative, which is this ongoing program, but it's basically where a guy like me or a person like me would, would do this very fundamental science, like here's this person, here are these red blood cells. What is the the fatty acid makeup of those red blood cells? Then that information is used somewhere down the line from a statistician um, or somebody running a study. What are the cancer rates related to the different fatty acid levels? What are the autoimmunity rates? Is there anything that we can divine out of this stuff from, from this kind of basic science stuff? And I was, uh, I did a year of actually naturopathy school and, and didn't like it. Um, I found the folks to be uh, uh, super dogmatic about their their view of things, which was kind of ironic because it was this alternative medicine thing, and and uh, they were so 
like religiously dogmatic about the way that they they looked at things. I I, I didn't really enjoy it, and I um, I was looking at either a PhD track or uh, possibly an MD track. Although I I um I was getting the sense that clinical medicine was probably not a good fit for me, just my personality and everything. And and uh, but it was around this time I had been tinkering with my diet for the the previous couple of years, and I'd shifted from. Going way back, I was a former California state powerlifting champion. I'm five foot nine. I'm about 165 pounds now. When I competed in powerlifting, I was 181 uh, when I would compete, and I had a 565 squat, 565 deadlift, and a 345 bench. So pretty, pretty good numbers for for that time. And I I was eating kind of a standard bodybuilder type diet, mixed diet, and this was. Uh, getting into the early mid nineties and at college, everybody was into veganism and vegetarianism. So I started eating more that, that direction, still eating the same number of calories, but I just could not maintain muscle mass. And I developed some pretty serious health problems. I ended up with ulcerative colitis bad enough at the age of 26, 27, that they wanted to do a bowel resection and wanted to put me on immunosuppressant drugs. And I knew enough about that situation at that time that it's not a good gig. You know, they, they start, they start carving off pieces of, of real estate that you really want to keep your whole life. And, and that's not good. And then the immunosuppressant drugs are not good. And it was kind of an interesting or, or odd set of circumstances, but my mother had a lot of health problems as long back as I could remember. And, uh, her rheumatologist did some screening on her and it turned out she had celiac disease, which is, you know, this gluten intolerance. She had rheumatoid arthritis, Sogren's like about eight different interrelated autoimmune diseases. But her rheumatologist said, you are reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy. And when my mom was describing everything that she had going on and all the stuff that I was developing, like there was clearly a bunch of similarities there. And it was well understood that celiac has a really strong hereditary component to it. Um, I just, but when I was thinking about this, I was still vegan at the time. I'm like, okay, no dairy makes sense. You know, dairy's evil and in, in that kind of vegan uh, framework. But I was like, no grains, no legumes. Like what, what, what the devil do you eat if you don't eat grains and legumes, you know? And I just was kind of free associating on that. And I was like, oh, well, Grains, legumes, and dairy, that's kind of like agriculture. That was Neolithic. What did we do before that? That was the Paleolithic. We were hunter-gatherers. And th th this was right around 1998. And there was a new search engine called Google at that time. And I went into the house, turned on the computer, waited for it to like do its hamster wheel thing. And then I did my dial up. And into Google, I put Paleolithic diet. And there wasn't a much, all that much there at that time. But what I found was really interesting. There were a few articles that suggested this linkage between um, some immunogenic proteins or characteristics of, of grains and legumes and increased rates of autoimmune disease in, in kind of westernized societies and whatnot, and then insulin resistance from just kind of over-consuming carbohydrates and calories. And it made a lot of sense. And I mean, I was so sick. I'm, I'm a 165 pounds right now. I got down to 125 or 130 pounds. So if you imagine 40 pounds less of me, like I, <laughs> there wasn't much left there. So uh, my first meal off of veganism was a slow cooked beef rib rack and uh, a, a, a 
honeydew melon and a little bit of salad. And I remember I had one of the really terrible consequences of that ulcerative colitis and all the depression and all the stuff that I had going on. I had terrible sleep for for years, you know, as as I got more and more sick. And I ate this meal sitting in a chair and I didn't get out of the chair for 12 hours. I literally fell asleep in the chair. Like, and I I'm I'm not that person. Like I I don't like fall asleep watching TV or anything. I I but it was like I was ninja blow darted roofie, just didn't get out of the chair. I, I came to like 12 hours later. And fortunately it was a weekend. So I didn't like miss work or anything. I'm like, Oh my God. And I actually felt kind of good for the first time in, in years. So I was like, well, maybe there's something to this. And now 23 years later, I've been eating this kind of ketogenic ish, low carb paleo type thing. I've, I've tinkered with just damn near anything you could imagine within those, those lane lines. But, uh, I, I went on to co-found the the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world and worked in and around CrossFit for a long time, have done work with police, military, and fire, was on the uh, Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Committee for a number of years where I would speak to the uh, SEAL teams, the special boat teams, and their families at their pre- and post-deployment retreats. And so I've, I've been really fortunate to have a, a pretty broad, I, I guess, career path. But my my expertise, I guess, is dealing with people like me who have complex gut autoimmune and metabolic issues. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm arguably like the toughest nut I've ever had to crack. Like the reason why I stay in this is really just trying to continue to figure out my own problems. And usually everybody that I work with is easy by comparison to figuring out what my, my own challenges are. So that that's a long rambling 23 year history of doing this stuff. I've written a couple of books that made New York times bestseller and some stuff like that. Um, before we get into sodium, which is what I really want to talk to you about. I, um, you said a couple of things there. There's a certain religiosity around, um, different diets. Mm Mm-hmm that um the inflexibility of well it's like religious it's it's like a, they're like zealots of one and, it, and it's like all over the spectrum you pick your whatever you want to pick there's a zealot for that thing it, it says it, like you know yeah and and, and, and i was of, that person initially because it saved my life sure and i was super i had this kind of weird sense that um you know, if we have a purpose, one of my purposes was to make people aware that they've got options. Mm-hmm. If they have like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, all these nasty gut issues that really have terrible outcomes and the uh, mm. drugs and surgery to manage them are not good. And I knew that we had better options yeah. than that. And now 23 years downstream, we have some wonderful randomized control trials. We have people like Terry Walls who have done some great you know, legit, uh, uh, peer reviewed research. And so the cat's kind of out of the bag on that. And as it became more ubiquitous, that information, I I think one, I grew up and then two, it's kind of like, okay, that information is at least there. You're not sticking that genie back in the bottle. And so I don't have to be quite the religious zealot around this stuff, but I, I didn't mean that you were, I, I, but I I just wanted to own that, that like, you know, it, 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 um, I think people can go from being very sick and then have a really profound transformation, you know, that, that can buy them into it. And also they're much smarter people than myself, but they, the folks have pointed out that 
with the decline of things like like re- legitimate religion and community activities and whatnot, um, people today really don't have a lot of meaning in their lives. And so if they can find a way of identifying with a group and, you know, the, the vegan thing is interesting because you will be skinny. They'll tell you you'll live forever. You're going to save the planet. You're morally superior. You're in this in crowd of, of you know, uh, wonderful people who care so much. It's a really powerful thing. And I, I don't want to detract from it too much other than I think that they have the the, the food system part totally wrong. I read, uh, over my shoulder, I have this book, Sacred Cow, which talks about the the need for a, a an animal inclusive food system and that 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 is actually a regenerative process not a degradative process and whatnot so uh, it, it's an interesting thing though but you know in a world where it's difficult to find meeting um, attaching oneself to a dietary or like a fitness tribe like CrossFit it's powerful it's really really powerful well the the other thing you said was that you stay in this trying to figure out the complexity of your biology. And where where I was going with this was like, we're all N of one Mm -hmm. when it comes down to it. And so whenever I see like a diet book, it's the, it's the lectins, it's the, this, it's the, that, whatever for that person. Okay. I believe it. Right. But to universalize this, um, I think it's where the, where the problems come in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it should be best presented as like, a game of darts yeah and here's your game of darts right and hopefully this thing is like center of the bullseye for you but more than likely there's going to be one or two elements to it that are center of the bullseye and then it's gonna gonna mm. get uh, uh less and less applicable i i don't want to derail this because i know you want to talk uh electrolytes and whatnot but i use this as an example and it it, it seems to be compelling for people if somebody asks is, is caffeine good or bad for me it, it it's kind of like well I don't know. And one of the the big uh, conundrums around caffeine is half-life, like how long mm-hmm. it takes to clear caffeine out of the system. And if we look at the whole population, a bell curve population and average everybody, the average half-life for caffeine is eight hours. And a half-life, if people aren't familiar with that, if I consume 100 milligrams of caffeine, how long does it take for that to be 50 milligrams? And then how long for it to be 25 and, and, and so forth? The bugger with that, though, is that there are fast metabolizers who can have a half-life with caffeine of four hours, and there are slow metabolizers that are 36 hours, 9x longer than the fastest people. So when somebody says, is caffeine good or bad for you, it's really a a very in of one type of thing. And not everything in biology has as big a spread as that, but a lot of things do. So like whether, you know, this person is super carb tolerant and they thrive on, on, you know, a high carb diet and they have great glycemia, their blood sugars look great. And then the person sitting next to them, they would be, you know, peri-diabetic eating the same diet that the person next to them. And they may be family members, you know? So I, I think that those are some of those things where we, we, uh, these concepts of like low carb, high carb, vegan, paleo, whatever, they're nice, um, heuristic as a simplified tool for if you have problems, here's a place to start. It may not be where you finish, but at least here's a a starting place to start hashing your way through the undergrowth and figure out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I know vegan Olympians. Mm -hmm. I I was vegan for a month and it about killed me. (laughs) Um, It just doesn't work for me. And I, I, I recall there's the 
my favorite Nietzsche quote is the will to systematize indicates a lack of integrity. Mm. And I take that. It's like, you know, you got to do the work. You got to see like, is, does this work for you? You know, and, and, and if it doesn't, then do something else. Like you right. don't have to adopt that religion, whatever it is. It's, it's you. Right. right. And right. Um, so let's get to, um, sodium, which is like super fascinating to me. Um, first I want to, I want to ask you about sort of the, the history of this. Um, and I, I want to, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I have a, a physician who's on my scientific board and we were talking sodium a few months ago mm -hmm. and, she, and she says to me, this is a very I'm this is somebody who's really uh, knows what they're talking about in general. And I said, you know, um, sodium, you know, we're looking at like, you know, sort of three to five, um, you know, grams a day. And she's like, oh, no, you want under two. And I said, really? And I said, I don't know about that. And she calls me back the next day and she's like, oh my gosh, you're right. Why did I think this? Um, so there seems to be this sort of, I mean, through, we're talking like, not just through like regular people, but through high level medical establishment right. about this sodium idea that it's bad for you, that uh, causes high blood pressure, that all these other kind of bad problems. Where does this come from? It, it, man, it, it's a... Uh... It's a little bit of a complex thing to unpack. Uh, the number one killer of folks in developed nations now is cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. It's almost certain that whether you're into the uh, vascular endothelial damage model or the lipid hypothesis model or an amalgamation of both, which is kind of where, where I am, it's really well understood that some degree of damage to the vascular bed is likely a precipitator of atherosclerotic placking. Like we only see placking on the arterial side of the circulatory system, the high pressure side. We don't see any placking on the venous side, the lower pressure side. So there's there's clearly something that that is at, at play there. And one of the big drivers of blood pressure is sodium retention. When we retain sodium, we retain water. So it seems like kind of a, a, you know, Sherlock Holmes, like, you know, op open and shut case, you know, it's like high sodium, you know, you retain water. If you retain water, your blood pressure goes up. If your blood pressure goes up, we get non-laminar flow of, of uh, fluid through our vascular bed that causes turbulence, that turbulence damages the vascular endothelium. And then it foam cell, atherosclerotic plaque, throw a blood clot, you're dead, you know, and, it, you know, from there. So then the recommendation is lower sodium and we'll, we'll solve hypertension. The only bugger is that that doesn't work at all. And we have like outstanding randomized controlled trials, metabolic ward interventions, you know, gold standard stuff where they take people with high blood pressure, put them on a low sodium diet. It doesn't really change their blood pressure much. It comes down maybe a little bit. But what's interesting about that is that our body stores sodium in the connective tissue, in the bones. And so if we don't have a, a enough sodium in circulation, we will mine sodium out of our body, out of our bones to, to supply the, the sodium that we need, at least for some, some period of time. And interestingly, uh, there's a really remarkably high linkage between low sodium intake and osteoporosis because not only do you mine sodium out of the bones, you take calcium out of the bones too. So there's this kind of weird 
you know, artifact in the literature around that. But what's happening, so what you have to ask is, okay, well, if the sodium isn't specifically the problem, if higher sodium isn't necessarily good for somebody with hypertension, but low sodium isn't fixing the problem, what's the problem? And it's pretty clear it's hyperinsulinemia. It's it's insulin resistance. Folks overconsume calories, overconsume you know, uh, refined carbohydrates in general. This leads to el- chronically elevated insulin levels. When insulin goes up, a hormone called aldosterone is elevated. And aldosterone is kind of the primary driver of, of sodium retention. And when we elevate that aldosterone, we retain sodium. And if we're eating a mixed Western diet with lots of refined foods and lots of sodium, then we we hang on to that sodium. If we're eating a lower sodium diet, we retain whatever sodium is there, we keep. And this is where the the really like the gold standard for dropping blood pressure is some sort of a low carb diet or uh, some amount of fasting. There's this process called the naturesis of fasting, the loss of sodium and water from fasting. It happens in everybody. It happens every single time. There is no, there are no exceptions to this thing, and so we're we're really chasing the wrong issue there. Uh, sodium is more of a bystander than a primary driver, and so we're we're you know there's a, a great saying: treat the cause. The cause is insulin resistance. When we get people to eat a minimally processed whole food diet, and it could be paleo or vegan or low carb or high carb, whatever. But generally when people shift to a mainly whole food type diet, their glycemic load drops, which drops their insulin, drops their tendency to retain sodium. And then the flip side of that is that 80% of the sodium that people in in, uh, industrialized nations consume so that they get their sodium from is from refined food. So when you shift away from a refined food diet, you drop your sodium intake, drop your glycemic load, and you also in, end up uh, not retaining the sodium as much, which is then where we need to reevaluate things like maybe we need to add sodium to the diet, particularly if you're you're uh, active or in a hot or humid environment or at altitude and all these other kind of factors there. But that really is where... Um, sodium kind of got got demonized, and there uh, there was a powerful recommendation. It's still there to consume under two grams of sodium per day. Yeah. But then there was some some fantastic uh, kind of global population uh, research done, and it, it suggested that for an average population, this isn't even an athletic population. Average population, the low point of morbidity and mortality was between three to six four to six grams, about five grams of sodium per day was the low ebb, which is more than double, you know, what the, uh, the, the standard medical recommendations are. If you were lower than the, uh, the five grams per day, particularly if you were lower than two grams, it, it creates a U curve and it's very steep. Like it is far more dangerous to have too little sodium than too much because you have to get up to eight to 10 grams of sodium in an average population to have the same morbidity mortality as consuming two grams per day. So the literature is pretty clear that it's far more dangerous from a health and and a a death perspective to have too low sodium than too high. And there's definitely uh, circumstances that that change that. Like if you're on end-stage kidney disease and dialysis and all that type of stuff, like things change. But the funny thing is on dialysis, the, the, um, 
the electrolyte they're really concerned about is potassium, not sodium. That's the thing that will kill you. So sorry, I know I'm blabbering now, but that that's kind of the big the yeah. big picture of where sodium got demonized. And it's been really hard to unpack that because we assigned blame to the thing that wasn't really the problem. And then we've put all this energy and resource and public health info into trying to address the thing that isn't actually the problem. Uh you know, I'm I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor. When people ask me about food, I tell them one thing, eat a low glycemic diet. Yeah. Like yeah. keep your glucose load down. All range of bad things happen um, yep. if you don't do that. Um, well, and the fascinating thing with that is if you it, like my wife is super carb tolerant, a low glycemic load diet for her can include rice and beans and a little bit of bread and stuff like that. And yep. her blood sugar looks exactly the same as mine eating about 30 to 50 grams of carbs a day. So, right. uh, so that yep. is universal yep. across the board. And my wife, if we continually hammer her with refined food and, and, and uh, maybe some seed oils and just excess calories, we will break her ability to have a good glycemic response. So that low glycemic load recommendation, the folks who thrive on a high carb diet, something that folks don't appreciate is that their blood sugar looks fantastic, Yeah, but not everybody fits that bill. A lot of people, probably probably 75% of the population need to be in some sort of a carbohydrate capping kind of scenario. And it doesn't mean they're ketotic, but it doesn't mean that they're eating 400 grams of carbs a day. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I had a big bowl of oatmeal and seeds and like protein this morning. Uh, mm -hmm. But I have, you know, 2000 calorie workouts. Right. So, right. <laughs> like, right. I need to, I need to do that. I'm not going to like, you're not going to make it. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I have here, uh, like in preparation for our interview today, I, I printed up some science here. And, um, so this is from, uh, the journal nutrients, um, November 21st or November, 2021. And so they did this sort of, um, meta analysis of all these sodium studies. And they say here, we contend that the current evidence indicates that most people around the world consume a moderate range of sodium three to five grams a day. And that level of intake is associated with the lowest risk of cardiovascular disease and mortality. And that the risk of adverse health outcomes increases when sodium is below three grams a day. Yeah. Amazing. Right. Yeah. So then they, um, there's this other bit in here. I just want to read this because I'm I, again, I'm not a scientist. I don't remember this as well as you do. Um, there's a bit in here about potassium, which you mentioned. So talking about um, the associations of sodium intake and, um, and high blood pressure. Um, and they were saying that these associations with hypertension are people consuming low amounts of potassium. And that actually increasing the potassium will help with blood pressure. That yeah. is not the sodium. Yeah. 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 And and that's why like our general recommendation element as, as a company is to eat a minimally processed whole food diet. Because if you do that, if one does that, it's virtually guaranteed you're going to have a high potassium diet. 
The problem with right. processed foods is that they tend to strip the bulk of the the potassium out of the out of the the matrix, and so you end up implicitly then in a low potassium, high sodium kind of scenario. So we we are definitely on board with the notion that you generally want more potassium than sodium. That we 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 want uh, uh, to try to get that from whole foods because they've got all these other wonderful characteristics that go along with them. But yeah, this is another example where. Again, for that individual who is low potassium and they've already got a, a high sodium load because of processed foods, more sodium isn't helping them. But blaming sodium is also not addressing their underlying problem. They have hypertension because they don't have adequate potassium. And, and you're not going to fix it by any other means like blood pressure lowering drugs. Ironically, blood, blood pressure lowering drugs usually cause one to shed more potassium. So it, it actually exacerbates the problem. And this is, again, where in general, if we can get in and, and tinker with diet and lifestyle to some degree, and we can do these, these A-B tests, it's like, here's my theory. You need more potassium. And if we're right about the need for more potassium, then we will see your blood pressure drop. Go. And then we do it. And if that works, then we're good. If it doesn't, it's like, okay, well, we have something else going on here. But it, it, it's um, when you look at the relatively benign side effects of diet, lifestyle, sleep, movement versus any virtually any type of pharmaceutical intervention is like we should really be kicking the can on the pharmaceutical interventions as long and as far as we can. And really, that should be reserved for people who are just unwilling to do anything else. And it should be explained to them that this is when you look at um, metformin, blood pressure meds, they don't really improve longevity. They're not really helping people live longer. It, there's some circumstances where you, you kind of make the argument for it, but um, it, it's a, a, a band-aid approach on, on what is like a, a, you know, a sucking chest wound. It, it's really the, the, this broad metabolic problem underlying the whole thing is really what we have to go after. But it's also, it, it's devilishly hard to get people to change diet and lifestyle. So we have to do whatever we can in those circumstances. I find that remarkable that, um, I mean, I'm, I mean, we're both, we're these kind of people who like, <laughs> if I, like I, I measure my sleep, I know what I eat. I measure my stuff at the gym because I want to, you know, it's like, I don't have that much time here on earth and I would like right. to really optimize do, it, opti yeah. <laughs> you know, that I think where it gets overused, but that's really what we're doing. Right. Like we mm -hmm. want to make the best of it. And I, have trouble understanding people who, you know, will just go and, you know, they're eating like processed meat. Yeah. Like what, what, and you'll say like, well, you know, like, um, what that's going to do. And I can tell them very graphically what that's going to do. And they're like, yeah, yeah. But I really like hot dogs. It's like, okay. Hot dog, whatever, you know, <laughs> right. You know, my, my dad was a lifelong, like from, from the time he was 12 years old, pack a day smoker, developed diabetes pretty mm. early on, um, drank a lot. And I remember doing diabetic wound care on him. Ah. They, they cut off his uh, oh. big toe, then ah. all of his toes, then part of his foot, then all of his foot. And and each, each time along ah. the way, he's like, well, Rob, I'm going to let him take the foot. And I'm like, dad, you realize like, it was like in his head, ah. he was doing some negotiation with the universe. It's like, okay, you take my foot universe. And then you can leave me alone. It's like, no, dad, that's not how it happens. This is, we're just going to keep whittling parts oh. off of you. And, and, uh, 
And there was nothing. I'm like, dad, don't you want to meet your grandkids? Don't you want this? Don't you want that? And, um, my dad had a, a, a difficult life too. Like he had a much more difficult life, like childhood and everything than I did. So it, it's hard to judge that, but it's, um, I saw that front, front and center, you know, like a good three or four years of intensive diabetic wound care on my old man before he ended up ultimately, uh, having a, a cardiac event and dying. But it's, um, I, I forget, I, I quoted these numbers in, in both of my books, but it's something like 45 million Americans try a diet three to four times a year and, and largely fail. Like they, they start mm. some sort of a dietary change, try to start working out all that type of stuff. And it's, um, damn, it's hard. You know, it's, it's really, really hard. It's kind of a all hands on deck kind of, kind of thing to try to get any type of, of positive change. And this is where now we're, um, we're seeing this stuff really highly, uh, medicalized. So they're recommending even, uh, very aggressive, uh, drug and surgical interventions for kids as young as 12 and 13 years old, you know, because they're just kind of throwing their hands up in the air and, and, uh, uh, not uh, the, the frustrating thing. I'm very libertarian at heart, very market, uh, centric at heart, but our uh, processed food giants and conglomerates get a lot of pass. They get a lot of uh, regulatory capture. Like I, I knew that the the big food was was giving a lot of money to like the American Council of of Dietitians and you know American Diabetes Association. There was just this expose recently though. And um, like the American Council of Dietetics has nearly a half billion dollars of investments in big food. So not only do they get paid on the front end, they are the owners of massive equity positions on the back end. And you know, in a scientific paper, when it says, can you list your conflicts? These fuckers should say all of them. We have all the conflicts. You know, I mean, it's like, you're never going to get a fair shake out of this stuff. And we just had this, uh, this deal where there was a ranking of foods and uh, Lucky Charms ranked above steak and eggs. I, I mean, way above. It, it was like, this is a, a green food. And then the steak and eggs was like red, man, must be very limited and, and all this stuff. And it, it's like, you got to be kidding me, you know. I, um, we had uh, Dr. Daniel Donald Abrams on a couple of weeks ago, and he's um oncologist at UCSF. And um, he was telling me that Yum Brands, so Yum owns um, KFC, they own Pizza mm. Hut, what else they own? A, a few of these sort of like huge fast food brands. They're anticipating opening, I believe, another 50,000 sites in the next wow. three years. Wow. And uh, it, like, it's just like, oh my God. And mainly in the developing world is my sense yeah. on that. Yeah, like they've yeah, kind of tapped yeah. out Western stuff, so it's more the developing world. Yeah. Oh, they no, they they want one of those on every corner. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, you know, I don't know. When I I had this big career as a photographer, and there was only one company I would not work for. Like I used to work for Nike and Amex. I used to do all this big stuff. I would work for the cigarette companies. That's fine, um, because it's like you know what the deal is. It's like right. on the pack. You it's pretty small, transparent. It's yeah. Right. Like you know what the deal is. Okay. I would not work for McDonald's. Huh. It's the, the only company I would not work for. Like you guys are just 
evil beyond and i and i can't i can't go there <laughs> right, right 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 um so let's i want to get back to sodium here um you know one of the things that um we had dr scott sure on um we've had him on a couple of times and i remember we had a conversation about a year ago and he was telling me about water absorption and sodium and we had this it was sort of my initial take into this idea that maybe sodium's not so bad and he said he said to me, you know, there are very few people that are actually sodium intolerant. Um, and by the way, you can't absorb water like straight H2O doesn't work. Um, you're just going to be stripping all the minerals out of your body. You need sodium in the water. Um, is You agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's largely true. You can the the thing about all this is that. The most tightly regulated processes in the body are probably pH and electrolyte balance. Mm -hmm. And if if one were to show up unconscious to an emergency room and the doctor's like, you know, you're unresponsive. We found this person on the street. We don't know what's wrong with them. What do you start doing? They will check blood sugar. They'll check pH. They'll check electrolytes. If pH is off by just a little bit, a little high, a little low, you will be unconscious or it will kill you electrolytes off by just a little bit unconscious or kill you blood sugar can can screw you up pretty good but the the interesting thing about that is blood sugar can exist on an orders of magnitude spectrum before it kills you a drop is far more dangerous acutely than a, a really elevated uh you know high blood sugar but a, a little bit of alteration in that that um Electrolyte balance and, and it, you you feel sick, you feel nauseous, you're lightheaded, lose fine motor skills, you get cramping. The ultimate cramp is a heart cramp, you know, and it, it just kind of kind of goes from there. And if we just hammer water, what we end up doing is diluting those electrolytes and getting them further and further and out of balance. And you and I are old enough, like we were still on the cusp of of this thing. Like when I played football, youth youth football. The coaches would tell it. We uh, all the kids showed up with a jug of water, and we had salt tablets. And we would, it, when we'd take a water break, you'd do a salt tablet and chew on, you know, chop that up real quick, and then you would sip on water per your thirst. And we were good to go. And it was right around this time, though, that the like eight eight ounce glasses of water became vogue, and there was absolutely no science to support this. Uh, this is also when a lot of the really longer duration endurance activity, like marathons were kind of like the, the long duration activity, but it wasn't too long after the, you know, what, what I guess like late seventies, early eighties triathlon became a thing where not only did you run a marathon, you rode a hundred miles and you swam and, and people who would just drink water for these events would crater and oftentimes die from hyponatremia. Like there have been thousands of people from uh, football double days, uh, uh, military boot camps where the fear of dehydration was beaten into people. So they would pound water and they would end up diluting their their sodium specifically, and they would end up e either sick or, or dying. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, that doc was was spot on with this stuff. It it, it continues because, OK, I'm a co-founder of an electrolyte company. So and I'm, I'm you know, I, I got to spin a tail about why you need more electrolytes, although I will mention we started as a freemium option. We we released a uh, a how to homebrew your own formula 
And we still have that up. And we tell people, if you don't like ours, at least to our homebrew formula, you know, so, so just to maybe take some of the, you know, the, the conflict of interest out of that, but I am continually amazed at how much more dangerous low sodium is as far as killing you now versus, yeah, there can be some problems. Like if you're, you're metabolically in a bad spot and you're retaining too much sodium and stuff, doing more sodium isn't, isn't going to necessarily fix things. But I was just reviewing some literature around uh, COVID and some of the COVID complications. People lose sodium and they ended up in a hyponatrinic state. And that worsens the edema, the pulmonary edema, the backlog in the heart. And one of the, the big treatment you know, protocols that, that eventually ended up coming on was that they really needed to get that like normal saline into people to get their, their uh, uh, blood sodium levels up. A normal saline is nine grams of sodium per liter. Oh, that's a shitload. <laughs> like that's what's in us. Nine wow. grams. <laughs> and there's the, uh, each uh, half teaspoon is about a gram of sodium. So you're talking about like four <laughs> teaspoons of sodium for a liter, you know, not, not a big container. And right. that's what's circulating in us. So, and that's kind of what the body wants is homeostasis. And the kidneys are very good at pushing excess water out and retaining sodium, retaining potassium, like a, a, a healthy kidneys are really good at dealing with that, but there's limits to it. And if you just keep jamming water into the system without adequate electrolytes, and it really interestingly, the linchpin is sodium. If you get adequate sodium, the body will save enough potassium, save enough magnesium. It'll, it'll do a good job with that. But if it's under fueled in sodium, it becomes really difficult for it to sort out the potassium and do the other things that it needs to do. And it, it, it um, you sound like a crazy person, but when you really get in and read the literature, like this is just like Guyton textbook of physiology stuff. Like it's, it's right there, but because we built, you know, per your first question, like where did we start demonizing sodium from? We've so demonized sodium that we've forgotten how critically important it is for all this other stuff. But I tell you, an emergency room doctor, usually they get this stuff because they're saving people every day from these, these low sodium events. It, yeah. And it, one of the things um, we spoke about earlier is how quickly um, bringing in, a, like if you're sodium low, uh, if you're electrolyte low, how quickly you bounce back. It's like yep. an immediate, and I, I've, I've experienced this of, you know, spending too long in the sauna or something, and I didn't mm -hmm. like have enough water, enough electrolytes, and then I'll go out and I'll just like, you know, put down, you know, whatever, 16 ounces of water with some electrolytes in it, and it's like five minutes, and right. I just, boom, like I just snap right back to normal. It's amazing. Yeah, I, the absorption is quick, and the, this is one of the cool things about Focusing on electrolytes, like if you if you are feeling off, if you're feeling lightheaded, lethargic, um, if you're already at cramping, you're already like really far down the the electrolyte imbalance uh, story. But if you replete with adequate levels of of sodium and electrolytes in general, it's like ten minutes later you start noticing a a benefit. And if people track like heart rate variability and and stuff like that. If you've been deficient in sodium and then you get your sodium on point, you'll see an, a, a 10 or 20 point improvement in your heart rate variability score in a day. 
And then if you drift away from getting adequate sodium, you'll see your HRV, you know, crater and your recovery really goes down. So it's uh it it's cool in that it is a really quick feedback loop. Like you you don't have to wait weeks or months to be able to to see the benefits there. Yeah. And one of the things um uh we were talking earlier, I was over um having some video done with me up in one of the mountains and the crew um are all element enthusiasts mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're out for six hours carrying heavy stuff between 8,000 11,000 feet and and they told me they're like they can't do it without this like they just right. they, they just stop functioning yeah yep yep and, and altitude is one of those funny altitude and cold is is interesting in that we lose water we tend to have a suppression in our thirst mechanism because of the mm. cold. So then we tend to just not consume stuff in general. Right. So you can end up really dehydrated, which is is kind of a, a separate story from electrolyte imbalance. That's just where the total body water is deficient relative to um, to electrolyte status. But it's one of the, the the mountain is one of these places that people get in a lot of danger, mm-hmm. uh, altitude sickness. It, there's a lot of factors that play into it. But adequate hydration, which would, again, you look in a, a Guyton textbook of medical physiology, hydration is water and electrolytes. Right. But somewhere along the line, hydration became synonymous with just water. Yeah. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think there's some sort of like pee response that happens when you get cold. Yeah, you you want, yep. you want to pee more? Is that right? Yeah, you, 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 that, that upregulates like crazy, which is, uh, uh, bastard if you're trying to do like snow camping and you're in a tent and you think you're buttoned up for the night and you're like oh my god i need to pee again you know and so yeah yeah um the um so you know i've, I've been seeing people you know like these guys that climb up in the mountain and, and other people who were involved that aren't just athletes but you know they're um whatever they're doing they're you know firemen or whatever there um there's a lot of um physicality involved yep. in what they do. Yeah. But but you told me something earlier about this whole other subgroup, um breastfeeding women and yeah. t- t- tell me about this. Element was only up and running maybe year year and a half and and our our center of the bullseye crew that we were catering to at that point because of of kind of my influence and the other co-founders was this kind of low carb athlete scene and that were like we know that this really fits uh, uh, the needs of those folks, but we started getting tagged on social media and it was within these breastfeeding moms groups. And, uh, my, my wife, uh, with our, our first daughter exclusively breastfed for a year. And it was just a, a bastard. It was really demanding. And she had some problems with, with milk supply at various points and it gets really stressful, but these, we just started getting tagged on all this stuff and it went like wildfire and our, we could see our orders increasing and everything, but these gals would post pictures of, okay, here's my tiny bottle with barely any milk in it. This is what I got yesterday. And then here's my four or five bottles full. And I was using element in between this. And I, I sat down and looked at the, um, the physiology. And if you want breast milk production, you can't just drink water because the the casein, the lipids, the sugars are all co-transported with sodium. 
If you don't have sodium, you can't move this stuff. It's, it's like a chemical engineering uh, uh, process. So you have to have sodium there to be able to act as a co-transporter with all this. So if if a mom just drinks extra water, it actually can damage breast milk production because it's diluting the relative amount of sodium. And the body will be like, whoa, if you keep doing this, you're, you're going to end up dead. And so then it will release stress hormones. Uh, uh, epinephrine and cortisol to try to retain more sodium, but stress hormones are directly antagonistic to breast milk production. So it begins this whole terrible downward spiral. And then the flip side is getting adequate sodium plus adequate uh, uh, hydration, like fluid volume, man, you, you just really puff up the, uh, the breast milk production and becomes this virtuous cycle where they see more production. So they get more relaxed and they're less stressed and it, and it becomes this kind of virtuous cycle. And, uh, damn, I really, if there, there's a few things I'm like, I really wish I could go back in time. And that is one of the things like had, had we known about that, it would have been a much easier, uh, experience for us, but the breastfeeding moms. And then there's a condition called POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and it's where folks go from seated to standing and they will pass out. Oh, and right. it, it, yeah. it's um it's kind of autoimmune related. And it's really well understood that these people need more sodium, but they they find it hard, like just chicken bouillon cubes and stuff like that just aren't that palatable all the time to to do this stuff. But uh the the POTS community, we just exploded in that scene because people were getting some really significant benefits and the product tastes good and it's convenient and all that type of stuff. There's nothing magic to it other than it's got a good formulation and it tastes really good. And so um, pot seems to affect kids generally more than adults. And it, it's really dangerous because a kid can go from seated to standing, pass out and and die from a traumatic brain injury or, mm, you know, yeah. suffer all these problems from, from a, a, a really terrible you know, TBI from, from just passing out. And so these were two, two groups kind of medically related stuff that were not remotely on our radar that, that we would end up, you know, serving, uh, with, with element at some point. My wife has a hypervagus nerve, which is okay. very similar to the POTS thing. Yeah. And, um, in my kitchen about 15 years ago, she was having breakfast and stood up quickly and passed out and fell on her head and had a grand mal seizure. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we had no idea what was going on. And like, since then, you know, like in the morning there's, there's coffee and there's element. Right. And so that right. <laughs> like, uh, because you, you only want to see your wife have one grand mal seizure. You don't really want to see that again. <laughs> no, you don't want to see that really again. Terrifying. Well, yeah. I, I mean, like uh, Peter Atia, who's like the, the smartest person in the room, doesn't matter what room he's in. He's like the <laughs> smartest person. And I, I saw on social media, he had uh, he had stitches on his forehead and he was fasting and stood up and passed out. Oh. And then I shot him an email and like, can I send you some element? Like, you know better than this. And, and I think he actually is a, like a investor in element now. So, yeah, but it, uh, th this is where like, there's all these different verticals, uh, people who are fasting, um, athletes at, at high motor output, like the, the ACSM American council of sports medicine, even this very orthodox organization they recognize athletes in hot, humid, high motor output environments, their need may be seven to 10 grams of sodium per day. 
and they're assuming a high carb diet and all, all this other stuff. And if you're both high motor output and low carb, eating low carb or doing some amount of intermittent fasting can double your electrolyte needs, your sodium needs, mm -hmm. because your body's just not hanging on to it. And this actually becomes one of those uh, difficulties where it's like, hey, I know you like keto, but maybe you put in 50 or 75 grams of carbs in part, just so we retain a little bit more sodium and magnesium and stuff like that. So that we're not just shedding this stuff out of your system like crazy. What are you looking at now? So, um, you know, what, what's of interest to you now? Um, oh man, you know, the, this regenerative ag stuff is a pretty big deal. And it's kind of a, a hot button topic, like suggesting that well-raised grazing animals might actually be a solution to climate change and food security and food sovereignty and all that type of stuff. So that's, um, I mean, I definitely still continue to do a lot of work in and around the, um, the electrolyte topic. Like we're going to release, uh, a piece that I did on the, uh, the evolution of human water consumption. There's an argument to be made that humans should be looked at more like a camel than, than almost any other type of mammal, because we are actually remarkably good at retaining mm. water relative to, to other critters. So I've continued to do that, but this, uh, regenerative ag and kind of, uh, food sovereignty thing is a, a big deal. It's, um, I'm never going to make a dollar off of it. And the likelihood of me being canceled due to tinkering <laughs> with this is very high, but that's, that's kind of where I've found myself drawn to, to, uh, talking and trying to address challenges in that space. Is that, um, not to get too off topic here, but my recollection is an ungulate, like, um, a cow, mm -hmm. um, will eat, uh, grass. And then you, there's some sort of nitrate conversion that happens there. And so when the cow poops, it, there's just all kind. Of, so you you look at the American grasslands. So like two thirds of the Earth's landmass are grasslands. They they evolved grazing grasses um, and the animals that consume grass. Uh, it, it, at one time, there's a a film. It's called Sea of Grass, and it was made in the 1940s. And it was a historical piece talking about when people first started. Uh, moving into like the great basin, like between Salt Lake city and, and Las Vegas, not that long ago, there was like chest high grass from Las Vegas out to, to Salt Lake city, that area got over grazed. So you can overdo it with grazing animals. You can, it, and also interestingly, you can create de desertification by re overly removing grazing animals from an area, but they killed off the the natural predators to grazing animals, they fenced things and it, it just kind of changed the environment. But a, a, the closed loop cycle that occurs in these grazing scenarios, the grass pulls in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And some of that goes into the, the cellulose that like an animal would eat, but some of it gets turned into glucose that goes down into the roots. And that glucose is fed to bacteria and fungi that are symbiotes to the grass. And these bacteria and fungi mine minerals out of the soil. And then those minerals are used by the plant. And it's also combined with the glucose and other carbon backbones. And this is what topsoil is. This is where topsoil comes from. And it, it's, uh, this is one of the interesting things about the topic of, of say like climate change and, and food security and whatnot 
it's well understood that the the conventional methods of raising food, the, these row crops, destroy the topsoil. It allows the topsoil to be washed away. We have no mechanistic solution to that. Like we we just don't. the The very way that we use um, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer to to feed these plants. It causes all of the biological activity to happen within the like three to six inches of the the you know the surface of the ground. When these perennial grasses, people will do uh, hillside cross sections where they'll excavate it out. These perennial grasses will have roots that go down like eight, twelve feet, and and they're they're retaining water, they're they're sequestering carbon. There's all this microbiome that's occurring there. Like we're barely even scratching the surface and understanding what all this stuff is doing. But there've been some examples like in, in Sacred Cow, the film, it's the the accompanying film to the book. We interviewed a guy uh, who's a rancher down in the Chihuahuan desert, and he has reversed a million acres of desert back into perennial grasslands. And like the people who live there, who have lived there for like five generations, they didn't even know that grasses existed there. Like it, it's been, de, you know, denuded to such a degree and it's gone back to to basically like sagebrush, which is this transitional kind of plant that that occurs in these uh, desertified areas. But uh, it's a it's a lot to unpack that stuff, but it's a, a pretty fascinating topic. And, and it ties into a lot of different things that I'm into, like food sovereignty and decentralized food networks and local economies and stuff like that. That sounds like a big one. I'll keep you busy for it's a while. It's a biggie. It's a biggie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rob, is there anything you want to leave us with today? Oh, you know, I guess one thing is is just um, and and again, not to politicize this thing, but we've we've had folks a lot of messaging around like follow the science, the science is settled. And we've talked about multiple things today where there was an assumption about what the science was like the, the still the American medical association, American dietetics association, their writ in stone sodium recommendation is less than two grams per day two two grams or less. And we have fantastic data that suggests that that's probably hurting people that we, that we should probably have it a, a bit more than that. And that chasing low sodium isn't really the root cause that it's something else. Now, maybe we're wrong about that. Maybe there's even another layer to this story, but I guess it's just to remind people that science is never done. It's never done. Every couple of years, somebody finds a new muscle. Like I knew they, they found a new muscle in the leg and a new muscle in the face. Like a couple of years ago, we find new structures. I, I remember in my biochem undergrad, when you you look at the the TCA cycle, the Krebs cycle, you know where all these intermediates go around. I remember asking my my professor, or I suggested, I said, I bet that there's like little structures in the cell that just move these things around in like a Ferris wheel kind of kind of process. She's like, we have no evidence of that, um, it, and she was very dismissive of the whole thing. And it was about ten years later. And our X-ray crystallography got better, and lo and behold, it looked like a goddamn Ferris wheel. And you, you, it actually shuttles this thing. The thought before was this stuff just randomly cascaded around the cell, and and it, it under some time scale, like everything worked out. But no, there's a little micro machine in there that facilitates all this stuff. And I remember pinging this this back to her, and I'm like, well, 
here you go. Do you remember this conversation? And her her response to that should have been, we don't have any evidence to that, but man, that's a great hypothesis. You should get in and research that. And I guess that this is just something that I would encourage people to remember is uh, we're, the science is never settled. And then back to one of the first points that you made, we're also individuals. And the average of science may be completely meaningless if I'm three standard devi deviations from the norm. If I happen to be right dead center for a drug, an intervention or whatever, okay, great, it applies to me. But all too often, what we find is that the natural variation from person to person means that this aggregated data is almost meaningless. And there, there have been some very smart people that have made the case that this aggregated data is meaningless now, like we shouldn't even yeah. be doing it, that yeah. we have these broad understandings of physiology and medicine. And then what we need to do is clinical intervention that treats each individual as an individual. And I, I guess that those would be some things that I, I would beg people to remember because I, I just see this trend towards um, acquiescing all thought, all control, all messaging to this one hierarchical, all-knowing entity. And history has played that game, and it doesn't end well for for anybody. So I guess those are kind of my my oblique uh, uh, closing closing thoughts, like. Open mind, science is never settled. Don't don't buy that the people who who are uh, quote unquote the authorities have all the the answers and really have all the the um, have our best interests at heart all the time. Like I'm not a, a crazy uh, you know over the top conspiracy theorist, but when you look at the regulatory capture that we know about within nutrition and medicine, there's some problems there, and it doesn't mean that you ignore what medicine can bring us, but once you get beyond what, say, emergency medicine gives us, like if you fall off a mountain and you break some ribs and everything, man, emergency medicine is awesome. And then beyond that, I, I don't see a ton of benefit. If you've got a chronic degenerative disease, that's not the place to fix it. it it's at the dinner table and going to bed earlier and doing some movement and having community. That's where you fix these chronic degenerative issues, uh, short of like an acute life-threatening event, I don't see a ton of benefit out of, out of most of medicine. Yeah. I, I had, um, Dr. Max on, um, a couple of months ago and Max was the team doctor for a number, like he did 29 tour de France races. Mm. And what's really interesting about athletes is, um, there's only one metric that matters. You're on the did podium you win? or you're yeah. you win or not. It's <laughs> yeah. really simple. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's really black and white. And he said that the entire history of like sports physiological research, we just throw it out. It's useless. Yeah. I, I, I was asking him, well, does this work? Does this work? And he's like, depends on the athlete. You right. got to like, and, and, you know, in his world, it's very, um, result driven. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but I, I think that this is, you know, this idea of, personal responsibility is something that um, I sort of yammer on a lot about. And it's like, nobody forces you to put something in your mouth. You did that. Um, you decided when to go to sleep. You know, you decided what to do today. No one told right. you to do that. And it's, there's just, I, I, I think, I also think that we're moving away. What I'm seeing is that through all the different um, sorts of personalized measurement, um, I think that we're really moving away from 
as you know what you were describing i wish we had a, i wish this was a visual so you could see like a data distribution right um, that the amount of people that are actually dead center in any of this stuff is like <laughs> really really small it's right average it's the tails go way out and i can guarantee you you know you're going to be a tail on something and right. so it's like your job to sort of figure out, figure that out. Um, the data distribution is like an interesting place to start, but don't get locked into that. And I'm, yep. you know, that the other thing that comes to mind here is like my huge bugbear is the women's health initiative and like what the damage that caused right. um, to like millions and millions of people. Because bad science and really bad publicity around all that. And I think that, you know, as you said, science changes. So we got to stay on top. And just stay open to the fact that it might yeah. change and that it may yeah. not yeah. apply to you. Yeah, that's right. For sure. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, th this is great. Um, Sometimes we got to hang out. Um, I, I got to get up to like, you're still like, I feel like I'm north. <laughs> like another 12 hours. Really north. Yeah. 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 We have great skiing around here, whether it's downhill yeah. or cross country or uh, trying to escape a, a grizzly bear or whatever. We have some good stuff here. So, yeah. yeah. No grizzlies. We have moose here. We don't got any grizzlies. <laughs> um, Rob, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Huge honor. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye now. That was great. Isn't, isn't he? I just love his spirit. Um, the, the desire to investigate, to understand, and, you know, to see... Maybe some of the things that we thought were true, maybe they're true, maybe they're not, um, but we'll check them out. Um, we're going to get with Try This in just a second after a quick word from our sponsor. I'm one of those people who likes to know what's what. I like to measure things. And one of the most important things that I measure is my inner health. And I use Inside Tracker with their 43 biomarkers to keep track of what's going on inside my body. You know that the leading cause of death in America is arteriosclerosis and cardiac issues. And probably the leading indicator of what's going on inside your arteries is a biomarker called ApoB. And ApoB may not be something that your doctor is checking. Mine wasn't. ApoB is now included in the Inside Tracker Ultimate Test. I really recommend that you get this and you know where you're at. It could be something that, you know, could really have sort of life-altering consequences because, you know, leading cause of death in America. So you don't want that. You want to do everything you can to avoid it. Using their food first, supplements, and behavioral changes, you can affect these things. Check them out. InsideTracker.com slash Ageist. Save 20% on all their products. Today on Try This, I'm going to make a really simple suggestion. Walk. Just walk more. If there is one thing that I would really like to add to my health and wellness regime this year, it is to walk more. Walking is an amazing exercise. It is free. Pretty much anyone can do it. And it has tremendous benefits. It's not just the, you know, 5,000, 10,000, whatever step count. There's more to it than that. It's this idea that you're outside moving your body in a natural way, the way your body was meant to be moved. You know, we're humans. We're designed for locomotion. And the way we get around is our feet. So 
I encourage everyone to get out there and maybe go for a walk first thing in the morning or go for a walk after dinner. Go for a walk with, you know, your partner, with your friends. Take a look at the trees. Listen to the birds. Um, it's a wonderful thing. And I think as a species, we're not doing enough of it. And guess what? It's free. That's my tip for the week. Try this. Walk more. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on the show this week. It's great to have you with us. As always, you have the opportunity to, guess what? Live us up to a five-star review wherever you're listening to this program. And if you haven't, I encourage you to do that right now because we would really appreciate it. It really helps us out. And, you know, if you could tell someone else, tell a friend, tell a relative about the Super Age podcast, it might be something that could improve their lives, and they would probably appreciate that. If you want to contact me directly, David at SuperAge.com. I answer all my email directly and promptly. Next week, we got another great show coming up. Until then, everyone have a wonderful week. Try and get outside and do a walk, and we'll see you then. Take care now. <laughs>